music is still, to me, the biggest upside-down value proposition in entertainment, right? A movie costs you 25 bucks. Maybe you see your favorite movie two or three times. You can stream it on Netflix for $14.99 a month or whatever. Your book, you know, you, you buy a book, maybe it's $20. You read it once or twice, it sits on the shelf. Your favorite song, you probably listened to thousands of times. I have. And, and I could get it for free. If I go on Spotify ad, ad version, it cost me nothing. I could listen to that song forever, literally. Or any other song that I could even think of or imagine. It's probably 70 million songs now on Spotify. Why is it free? That was Steve Stewart. Steve is the CEO and co-founder of Vest. Vest provides a digital marketplace for artists and songwriters to share a percentage of a song's royalties to fans and brands for royalty-based financing through a process that Vest calls Initial Song Offering, or ISO. In this episode, Steve provides his insights on what's broken with the music industry, as well as where the industry needs to evolve for a more equitable experience for artists and music fans alike. Steve also talks about how Web3 and blockchain play a role in that evolution, as well as what he and his team at Vest are building. Steve's got decades of experience in the music industry and has a very clear understanding of the complexities within the industry. He was also very willing to address some controversies surrounding his company, Vest, with regards to royalties disbursement. As a music nerd, this was a fun episode for me. I really enjoyed his insights, and I'm sure you will too. Without further ado, here's Steve. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Good lady. How are you? I'm doing well. Welcome to the OnChain Medley podcast. I'm excited to talk all things music with you today. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. Thank you for your time. Yeah, let's kick it off with your background and foray into blockchain. How did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) So my background's in music. I I was in a band. I was part of a band. I managed that band. And then I got into professional management in the late 80s. I worked for Ice T's assistant as an assistant assistant manager back in the late 80s. And then I had a band that I grew up with send me a cassette tape back in the day, and they asked if there was a way I could help them get a record deal. And I shopped it for probably two years to all the majors and a bunch of independents, and finally got them a deal in 1992 with Atlantic Records. And that band went on to become Stone Temple Pilots. Um, oh, wow. We made a record. Yeah, we sold, I don't know, 40 million units, I think they say now, um, over 10 years. I was with them from 90 through 2000. And had another 20, 25 other artists signed in that period to major labels and publishers. So I got really familiar with how the industry was structured, how uh, you know the royalty collection methods that were, <laughs> and still are, inefficient were, were out there. And a bunch of the pain points that artists and creators had to work through to be part of the industry. And uh, from there, I, I always wanted to get into tech. And I watched the dot-com boom happen in the late 90s, and I felt like I missed that. And started dabbling more in the tech space and startup space. Um, in the 2000s, early early aughts, early 2000s, 2010, and then was at a company called Circus, which my co-founder Robert Menendez and I uh, met at. He was one of the co-founders of Circus, and he started talking. We started talking about music, and he's like, "Why does everything sound the same?" And I said, "Well, because most record labels are are anti-risk. They are very conservative. They're big corporations, big media companies, and they take very few chances. So the needle moves very slowly in the major." record label land. And the money follows, right? The money is basically risk adverse and it moves very slowly. And a very few number of artists actually benefit from the system. I mean, I think there was a study done by Citigroup last year that said about 12 cents of every dollar actually comes back to the creators, right? Which means 88 cents is going somewhere else, right? It's going to middlemen and record labels and publishers and collection agencies and all different sorts of entities, but it never really gets back to the people that actually make the music. So we wanted to start something that was beneficial to the creators, but also involved their fans and also involved their audiences. And I think that was the missing piece that we saw. The music publishing business and the music copyright business was all based on B2B transactions where music publishers would give an advance to an artist and then they might license those songs to other media companies or other brands but never really let in the public. And I thought that was a part of the equation that was missing. And we started Vest in late 2016, incorporated in 2017, launched the platform in 18. Wanted to bring the ability for fans to participate in the royalties of the songs and artists that they really liked. And it was a groundbreaking idea. No one had ever done that before. Um, music royalties is still kind of a dark art. There's a lot of 
misunderstandings and, and inefficiencies in the structure. It's a global royalty collection structure. If people don't know, there are about 140 what we call PROs, performance rights organizations, or in Europe they call them CMOs, collective management organizations that collect music rights from the playing and use of music in public spaces in these territories. So in the U.S., it's ASCAP and BMI and CSAC. In England, it's PRS. In Germany, it's GEMA. In France, it's SESAM. I mean, each, each major territory, again, about 140 of them, had their own collection societies. And those remit, again, any type of public license monies that come in. And if you're a U.S.-based writer and you collect through ASCAP, it comes through, say, the song gets played in South Korea. The agency in South Korea is called Comca. They receive those royalties. They sit on them for about three or four or five or six months. They pay them to ASCAP. ASCAP sits on them for another three or four or five or six or seven months. And then they pay them to the writer. And that's why sometimes royalties take a long time. It's kind of a complex structure. It is in place. It does work to a large extent. But that's, I think, where a lot of education has to come into play. And I think, just like with NFTs, there's a level of misunderstanding to start. And then I think... Once you get down to what it really is about, there's a better understanding of how the system works. I mean, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's not about someone saying, hey, I'm going to come in here and, and pump this and then get out of it. I think that crypto mentality tends to seep into certain things that are newer, and I see it in the NFT space. I see it in the royalty space a little bit, but the, the royalty part of it is where we started and where we remain. It's a, it's a valid stream of income. You're seeing a lot of major artist royalties trading in the hundreds of millions of dollars these days to big publishing companies and big institutional investors now. It's considered an uncorrelated asset class that doesn't move up or down with respect to the stock markets. So it's becoming a place where people think, oh, this is a good investment because it's a steady level of income over many, many years. And that's what we wanted to bring to the public and offer through Vest. Thank you for sharing. I have a lot of questions about the royalties and we'll get into that later, but I wanted to just kind of back up to one of the things you'd mentioned about NFTs. Um, I do agree. I think the whole crypto NFT space is a lot of hype and bad actors, and I have a lot of concerns about that. But I am curious, like, what what is your take on the NFTs? And then I keep hearing things like music NFTs is going to be the future of NFTs. 2022 is the year of music NFTs. <laughs> How do you think about all that? Uh, and what are your thoughts there? Well, first, I think the best thing about NFTs is it's opened up a huge awareness for the direct-to-consumer model. Right For the first time, I think artists are going, you know what, I don't necessarily need a label or a retail network. I can go directly to the consumer. Or I could put up a piece of art, a piece of my music, a piece of liner note, whatever, photograph, even a piece of royalties, maybe, and I could touch the fan directly. I could be involved with them. They can interact with me. They can purchase from me directly. Just the mindset of that is a shift away from how it used to be. I, I get calls still to this day Probably every couple of weeks, I get a call saying, hey, can you help me get a record deal? And my first question is, why do you want a record deal? Right? But there's still a mentality out there that the record labels control everything and that you are not successful unless you run through a label. But don't they, though? Isn't that true? Like, If you're a small artist and you're not discovered online, you need the record label to push you through, right? No. You've heard of Lil Nas X. You've heard of, you've heard of Justin Bieber, right? You've heard of these artists. That- yeah, but for every Justin Bieber and Lil Nas X, there's like a billion other people who could be that need a record label to push them through. Wouldn't you agree with that? I would agree so? that t- if you're looking at large-scale success, record mm-hmm. labels and publishers tend to be involved. Now, is it necessary from this point forward? I think less and less. Okay. Right? Because today, any of the services that labels provide, with maybe one exception, which would be radio, you can purchase a la carte. Right? You can say, I need a publicist. Boom, I'll pay that person. Oh, I need someone to help me produce a record. I need a record producer. Boom, you can pay that person. I need a distributor. How do I get my records, my songs out to Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon? Boom, there's a distribution network. All those things can be had, and a lot of them at a far, far reduced rate. Production costs are almost down to nothing, right? I can literally make a record on my phone through GarageBand or or, or Logic or Pro Tools or any number of uh, digital workspaces that allow you to make a professional quality recording in your house, in your bedroom, for pennies compared to what it cost, you know, 20 years ago. So production costs, labels fronted most of that. That's one reason they were the gatekeepers, because most artists couldn't front a $100,000 recording budget, right? That's a lot of money, and no one had that. So when you take that $100,000 and now it becomes $1,000, that opens up that to a lot more people without having to worry about a gatekeeper. On the distribution side, Spotify... Apple Music, Amazon Music, those are free platforms to distribute to. For 
a few dollars, if that even. I could put a song through TuneCore or DistroKid or CD Baby and have it on Spotify within 24, 48 hours. Cost me almost nothing, right? Back in the day to get a record in a store or a CD in a store was almost impossible unless you just went to a little indie record store and say, hey, can you put my record on the corner over there, please? Which I've done. <laughs> but um, today, that cost is almost zero, right? So production and distribution costs have been minimized to almost nothing. What does that leave? Marketing, right? And the biggest part today is discerning the noise from the stuff that you really want to hear. Who's curating? How do I know what music is good or what music I'm going to like? So people rely on playlists or they rely on Pitchfork or some website or some other personality to help them navigate and curate what they're listening to. And labels, yes, they have a lot of money, but can you buy marketing outside? Of course, right? There's there's no limit to what you can purchase or, or partner with influencers on, on social media. No one's gatekeeping that, right? You can make those connections and put the money up and make deals. So I would argue that, you know, outside of terrestrial radio, which labels have traditionally had a lock on, but it's getting less and less important. You could have a hit and you could have a career and you can make more money based on the income that you're not giving away to a label or a publisher like that, and labels more specifically. The analogy to me is like Amazon, what they did to the publishing business on books. You can either make $10 a book on Amazon, or you can go to Simon & Schuster and get an advance, and they'll give you $0.10 cents a book until you recoup that advance. right? And there's no guarantee they'd promote you properly or market you for any length of time or anything. So it is riskier. You're not going to get that little cachet that comes along with having a Simon & Schuster publishing your book. It may be harder to get into bookstores, but I don't know who goes to a bookstore anymore or else, or even where they are. But yes, if you write a book and say, I've got an audience because I have a YouTube channel or a TikTok channel and I want to direct my people there, they will go on Amazon, they'll make the click, they'll purchase the book. And guess what? You sold a thousand books at $10 each or whatever the number is. So there's an opportunity today to do it yourself like there never has been before at a high quality. You're playing in the same sandbox as the major label quality, right? You're, you're on Spotify, they're on Spotify, right? You're on iTunes, they're on iTunes. It's like the field has been leveled a lot, but what's been different is, like you said, you can't figure out what's good and, and how to get to the songs I really like. So I just see NFTs as a, as a way to shift a little bit. There's still very nascent technology. It, it is so new. We have what's called ISOs, initial song offerings, which are specific to music royalties. NFTs can mean anything. NFT could be a piece of art. It could be a piece of video clip. It could be a piece of music. It, it means like saying blue. Well, the sky is blue. The ocean might be blue. My shoes might be blue. I mean, you know, what does that mean? Blue could mean anything. So NFTs is very generic and very broad. But when you say ISO, you're talking specifically about music royalties. And I think the value, the real value to music, and yes, some creators are great artists on the visual sense. And they have great photographs or great artwork or great album covers. That's amazing. But the reason most people listen to music isn't for the artwork or the photographs. They're listening for the song. And the underlying value to the song is the copyright and the royalties that come along with the use and popularity of that music. And I think that's where we're focused. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. I think NFTs are broad and I, and I get that. I think a lot of people, at least from what I'm hearing, they just tie NFTs with the royalty piece of it. They see it when they talk about music, they're really thinking, well, I have this NFT that I can now have on the chain and then I can track royalty collections and payments and see how it's moving through the network. And so you're, what you're saying now is like, you're doing the same thing through ISOs or, or you think those two things to be decoupled. They don't have to be one and the same or how the those two play in the space. Yeah, I'm just saying ISOs are, are specific to music royalties, whether it's done through an NFT type structure, a blockchain type structure, or it's done through fiat off the chain. But the other part of it, and, and I have to mention it is, and I've read through many of these NFT projects and platforms. And as you probably are aware, when OpenSea first dropped, there were some issues, right? People could not get their money out because they didn't really do their homework. They didn't do any kind of KYC, uh, AML, where you know, you know your customer. There's, there's a lot of U.S. banking regulations that were, I'll just put them in quotes, being violated or not adhered to because there was no regulation or guideline in many respects. But when they start to see tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars being transacted, 
the U.S. government doesn't like that. They don't know who's involved, right? So they're like, well, where'd that money come from and who is it? And are they a U.S. citizen? Are they offshore? Are they, you know, is it, is it legitimate money? So Open Seas had to hold a lot of those monies back because they didn't know who the customer, they just had a wallet address. Someone came in with a wallet address and bought something. That was it. They don't know who that person was. They don't know where they live. They don't know where the, where the funds came from. And there's still a lot of dark corners in that area where even with the royalties themselves, most people have zero information on what royalties are, right? They think they know, oh, the song got played X amount of times. That means I get X. Okay, is that master royalties or are those publishing royalties? Are those songwriter shares or publisher shares? Is that a performance royalty or a featured performance royalty? I mean, most people have no idea how that is even registered or collected upon. And I will tell you that very, very, very few of the things I've read through identify any of that. The best I could see is we'll give you X percentage of your master streaming royalties. Okay, even that is a very broad term. It doesn't specify Spotify, doesn't specify Apple Music doesn't specify which master rights, doesn't even talk about advances or recoupment or anything like that whatsoever. A lot of it's disclosure, and there and there are issues with disclosure. A lot of artists and, and record company structural entities are not transparent, and, and it's a problem I have with them as well. I mean, it's we haven't evolved to the point where people are opening their books and saying, hey, here's what, what this earned and here's how you can participate in this. It's a very opaque industry in many respects. I think it's getting better. I hope it's getting better and we're working to try to make it better. But one, you have to identify what those royalty rights are. And then you have to make sure that the songs are registered properly on a global basis with those 140 different collection organizations, which you can do through certain you know, choke points. But you also then have to see, is, it, is this something where it's collectible? Are these song rights earning money? And many of those, uh, the ones I've read through, say there is no promise of any returns. There's no way to audit. There's, no, there's nothing. It's, <laughs> it's a little early, right? And, and I'm not saying it won't work. I think it will work, actually. I think it'll work very well. But this is like YouTube, right? When YouTube first came out in 2005, it was fraught with copyright infringement, right? Every video on there had music that was not licensed properly, pretty much all of them. And YouTube or Google bought it for $5 billion, I think, even with those issues, right? They knew that, wow, this site is a bunch of people that had the right intent, right? They're using music for good reasons, but they weren't using it legally. They didn't even know they had to license it properly. But they knew that eventually it would work itself out. And they did. When, when they got through the DCMA, which allowed takedown notices to, be, to work, now you see a functioning platform called YouTube that earns some creators you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and has billions of videos on it and has become a repository for video collectors. And I think the same thing will happen with regard to music rights. We're just in very, very early days. Yeah, I agree. It's very opaque. And sometimes I wonder if it's intentional, but it sounds like Rather than the technology adapting to that opaque industry, the opaque industry needs to sort of adapt to become more transparent, right? Do you think that's ever going to happen? It will happen. It's like what goes up must come down. The sun will come up tomorrow. There's a bunch of you know cliches you can mention, but it's going to be driven by the creators, right? Most of these record deals have seven-year limits on them in the first place. And that's why someone asked me the other day, well, why don't you just scoop up Adele and scoop up a number of artists? Well, they're under contract, right? This is someone that didn't understand the music industry saying, I just go get them, just go sign them up. Like, no, they're already signed to a contract to Sony Music, right? You can't just go in there and violate the contract. It's, it's a little harder than people think, but eventually they will come around. And, and I think you're going to see the labels. I just saw Warner today. They signed a deal with a company to start doing NFTs internally for their artists. But they will seek to play in this space. The space will dictate more transparency. And I think at the end of the day for me, and I've always been on the artist side, it's really about compensating these creators in a fair manner. And, and I got to say, music is still, to me, the biggest upside-down value proposition in entertainment, right? A movie costs you 25 bucks. Maybe you see your favorite movie two or three times. You can stream it on Netflix for $14.99 a month or whatever. Your book, you know, you, you buy a book, maybe it's $20. You read it once or twice, it sits on the shelf. Your favorite song, you probably listen to thousands of times. I have. And, and I could get it for free. If I go on Spotify ad, ad version, it costs me nothing. I could listen to that song forever, literally, or any other song that I could even think of or imagine. It's probably 70 million songs now on Spotify. Why is it free? Somebody created that song. Somebody recorded it. Somebody distributed it and marketed it and got it out to me 
somebody needs to be compensated, right? I mean, I feel like someone does, but it's odd that there's a generation, I guess, that skipped that and thinks it just floats through the air and, uh, you know, we don't need to compensate the artist. Well, I think you do need to compensate the artist. Instead of that 12 cents of every dollar, how about them making the 88 cents of every dollar Everybody else getting 12 cents. I'm a big music fan and I, I, I believe in supporting artists. Like before COVID, right? I'd go to shows. That's how I was supporting the artists. Sure. But now that's no longer the case, right? Eventually, hopefully it'll come back. But, it's but like back. the yeah. fact that the artist is getting 12 cents, I understand like the fans expect it now for that amount of money, but like it's not, they didn't create the rules. Like it just so happened and people are capitalizing off of it because even before we had Spotify, there was all this like people streaming on Napster and all the other like torrent downloads to get their favorite music because they didn't want to have to pay for it. So why do you think that there's such a mindset when it comes to music around people just feeling entitled to it as opposed to wanting to actually pay whatever that would cost? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think there is an entire generation that I'll call the Napster generation because you're right. People were sharing hard drives of literally tens of thousands of songs. Like, hey, here's 10,000 songs. Go for it. Or here's files. Download through BitTorrent, whatever. There's a a number of ways to get them. What's, What's interesting is there's always been demand, right? I've never seen a lack of demand for music and songs that people love. So people would go through these weird things. I mean, using BitTorrent is not easy, right? You have to find the song. You have to find the servers that it links to. You have to take certain risks because maybe it's corrupted or it's, it's malware or what have you. So people took all these risks and spent all this time trying to get to these songs. And I think what happened was, you know, Steve Jobs eventually said, look, I'm just going to call every song worth 99 cents. Right, and he told the labels, "You guys have been beaten up by Napster. You you lost you lost it. I mean, they Napster. I, I sat with Sean Fanning, and Fanning told me we wanted to partner with the labels. We sat them all down and said, let's work out a partnership.' And they all said, we're going to sue you. So at that point, all the songs were on CDs, which are digital masters. Right, the horses were out of the barn and running. Anybody that had a CD could replicate that in the best quality an infinite number of times. Right, and give it away." So they were chasing after something that they should have partnered with at that point, but they didn't. And they were stubborn, and they said, no, we're going to sue you, and that didn't work out too well for them. It really decimated the industry. But I think because there was a, let's call it eight years, ten years, where a lot of kids just saw music as, as coming through the airwaves on someone's computer, plus radio. Radio is kind of a weird, it's like TV, right? Radio's ad-supported like television, but you get you get your songs there. You're like, ah, it's just in the air. It's free. I heard it on the radio. Somehow there was a disconnect between that end user and the person creating the songs, right? The guy that's in the studio, the woman that's in the studio with her friends, singing, writing, playing, whatever, and getting it out. And then, then again, getting that 12 cents. So I think there's still something that says music's a loss leader. You know, music was the basis for YouTube, the basis for MySpace, Friendster, Facebook. You name TikTok, name any social platform, you'll see music plays a huge component in that. So people have taken advantage of it for many years. The label, you know, the labels have made money off of it, obviously, but they haven't even enforced their rights as they probably could or should have. Right? TikTok, for instance, there's so much music on TikTok that's not properly licensed. I know they're working towards it, they're getting there. But they take advantage of this. Oh, we can grab it, put it up. Yeah, we'll get sued. Or yeah, they'll spank us. But at some point, they'll have critical mass by then. Oh, we got 40 million subscribers last month. So we're fine, right? They can afford to pay their way out of it and work through it. YouTube did that with the DCMA, which said, look, if you, as long as you do a takedown, you allow people to do takedown issues, you're fine. So you can violate as long as you tell people that if, they're, if they notify you, you take down the song. Okay. So there's solutions to work around. But I think eventually people are just going to feel that it's the right thing to do to compensate these writers and performers. And I had a conversation with a Forbes writer, and she was talking about you know kind of the same thing. I said, look, in Japan, which is the second largest music market in the world, people don't know, people are still buying CDs, vinyl, and tape. I mean, 87% of the market is physical product. Spotify just got started there. They have very little market penetration in Japan. She said, why? I said, well, I think people actually respect the creators of this art and they kind of want to pay them. They don't know how to pay them directly, so they buy a $20 CD. They know they can go stream it on Spotify or some other streaming service for free, but they would prefer to do it the right way and show some value going back to the people that brought them that song and that joy and that experience. So I I think at everybody's heart, they realize there's deep value to their favorite songs. And I think most people would like to give back and make sure the creator gets their whole. So I think it's going to shift. I think once you see big artists coming out of their contracts, 
once you see fans start to participate at a large scale, because I think the other side of this, again, is the fan involvement, which has been lacking. It's been a one-way street for decades and decades and decades in the music business. Same with TV. You watch TV flows over your, your, your air as you watch it. Now you can interact, right? Imagine if you could interact with those TV stars or that sh- those shows or the writers, right? You can interact with these artists as a participant. And that's a very strong connection that I think bodes well for both the consumer and the creator. Awesome. No, thanks for sharing and providing that history. So then switching gears now to ISO, which is what you're doing over at Vest, and that brings the fans into the equation. Why do you think that's significant? How has that been taken by the artists and fans alike. Just walk me through why you think that's a better model than what we have today. Well, again, it's a direct-to-consumer model. So so it allows artists to go directly to their fans. And instead of just a donation, just to, instead of just ha- putting a hand out and saying, hey, can you please help me out, which you know is fair, but it also puts them in a, in a weird social position, right? Um, we always thought instead of just asking for a donation, how about providing some value back, right? So that make them a partner. Let them participate in your songs in a meaningful way. Not just, oh, I'll put you on my credits or I'll do a shout out to you on TikTok. It's, no, you're actually going to benefit. Whenever money comes into my royalty account, you will get a piece of it, right? That's a stronger connection. It's skin in the game. It, it lets them take the risks right alongside the artist, Right, and we saw it early on. Bowie was an inspiration when they did the Bowie bonds back in the late '90s, where they basically made a bond issue out of Bowie's music. They did a fifty-five million dollars securitization of fifty percent of his catalog pre two thousand, I believe, or had to be because it was in the late '90s. And they were able to go out at an eight percent coupon and sell that to the bond market, which was an investable vehicle. Right, it was done through SEC. It was, it was regulated properly, but it was it came out. And people bought in. It was one of the first times I think institutional investors started to look at music rights as a uncorrelated asset class. Didn't move along with the stock market. Wasn't as volatile once you had a song that was seasoned or a catalog that was seasoned over many years. So we chose to focus on royalties. We chose to let our fans partner with artists. Vest is a marketplace. It's it's a peer to peer marketplace where an artist comes to us and said, "I'd like to put these rights up on your marketplace." And a fan or a consumer comes in on the other side and says, I'd like to buy into those rights. So we don't buy the catalog or own the catalog. Or it's not our rights to sell. These are rights of these performers and creators. And then the public part of it comes in and says, we'd like to come in and participate at some fraction of that ownership. So uh, it's been an interesting model. It's very new. Many people don't understand how it works exactly. Uh, but I think the future bodes well for independent artists that are working their way up as well as for some established artists that have maybe gotten out of their record deals or stopped touring or what have you, but still have a strong, recognizable fan base that they just haven't had any way to get in touch with. There's plenty of artists from the 70s and 80s that don't have record deals anymore, that don't have a label, don't have a publisher, don't have a manager, and those songs do very well. The royalties keep coming in, but no one is actually working it. No one is actually getting them in touch or trying to make those rights more valuable. So... That's where we saw Vestas coming in. Interesting. So just walk me through the artist side, because you had mentioned earlier about, you know, 12 cents of every dollar goes back to the artist. And so with mm-hmm. the Vest model, if I'm only making 12 cents and I have to give the fans part of the royalties, like, where does that come from? Am I assuming that because the fans are, are investing in me and putting their money down? I'm just trying to put my head around <laughs> around it all, right? Because it doesn't seem like an artist that want to give out more royalties to fans. But I'm only getting a fraction of it to begin with. Yeah, first of all, they're not giving out anything, right? This is a proposition where the fan is supporting the artist and the artist is giving them a part of the royalty stream for a period of time, right? So again, it's not a handout on either side. It's not the artist giving somebody something or a a a buyer saying, hey, I'm just going to give you $5. There is a benefit to both parties, right? So um, the way that it works on Vest is we allow buyers to come in for as little as $5 and they can participate in a royalty stream. So each particular royalty stream can be different. Like I mentioned earlier, royalties can be master side, which is on the recording itself. They can be on the publishing side, which is the composition or the underlying song copyrights themselves. Or they could be performance royalties. There's any number of royalties. If we break it down into master, songwriting, and publishers, those are the three main pools of royalties. So what we had to do is chunk it down from the artist side. So an artist that they have no label deal or publishing deal, they own 100% of everything. Some of them have publishing deals, so they can't really give up their publishing royalties or offer their publishing royalties, so they maybe can offer their master royalties. 
or their songwriting royalties, which are different than publishing royalties. So anything that they have that is not encumbered, in other words, not subject to an advance, so like a label like Sony hasn't given them a million dollars, and then Sony would not pay that artist anything else until that million dollars was recouped, and then they would start paying them after that advance was paid back. So anything that has an advance or a loan against it, we can't work with. It has to be clear and free. And then we have to see you know, royalty earnings. We're not selling anything in the future. We're not saying, oh, here's some money, go make a record, put it out, let's see what happens. To get on our platform, it has to be something that's already in distribution, that's already generating a royalty somewhere. So from that point, you know, they submit and say, look, I, I've got this song. I'd like to put up 10% of this song. I'm just, this is an example. You know, this song earns, I don't know, $1,000 a year. I want to do a five-year deal, so that's $5,000. Can you do it? And, and we go, we look at it, we verify the royalty information and say, yeah, it looks like that's where you're getting. If you want to put that up for $5,000, fine. So we don't set the pricing. They set the pricing. We can disapprove if something's ridiculous, if the guy wants a million dollars and the song earns a hundred. We're not going to say yes to that. On the fan side, you can come in for as little as $5 and on up, and that will get you a pro rata percentage of the royalties that are offered. So if an artist was, say, offering 1% of their royalties for $1,000, and you came in with $1,000, you would get 1% of those royalties. If you came in with $500, you'd get half a percent of those royalties and so on. So you're buying in just like people buy into Bitcoin, right? You don't have to buy five Bitcoin. You can buy $5 of Bitcoin. And you would get 0.000005% of a Bitcoin or whatever it is. So we let the creator side chunk down to as little as 1% of their rights in, in any side, any, any bucket of rights. And on the consumer, the buyer side, we let them come in for as little as $5. So it helps both sides come to a point where there can be a, a real market for the music. Gotcha. So then as a fan, I put, let's say, using that example, I put in $5. How does that money get distributed? to the artist and to Vest, what's that take rate for you all? Vest, we have a transaction fee of 5% on the buy side. So if you put in $5, we would take 5% of that as a transaction fee on top of the five. So I think it ends up being like $5.60 or 80 cents, whatever it is. That 80 cents or 60 cents comes to us. It helps us cover the, the credit card transaction fee and the handling costs. But the $5 itself goes directly to the artist. So they're getting 100% of the purchase price the fee is being paid by the buyer, but the purchase price itself, 100% goes to the artist. Gotcha. And then as the fan, using the example you used earlier, 10%, uh, five years or whatever, uh, you then get those royalties for a period of five years. Is that correct? Right. So we use what's called a reversion structure. And it's the exact same structure that major publishing companies, in fact, all publishing companies I know use, Sony, Universal, Warner Brothers, BMG, et cetera. If Sony Music... If you were a writer and Sony said, hey, well, I'll give you $250,000 as an advance, there would be a term. It would generally be a three- or five-year deal. And you'd say, okay. And they would cut you a check for two fifty, dollars And then they would start to collect your royalties for that period of time. Now, they also try to exploit. They try to get people to use and license the song. Vest does not do that. We're not a publisher. We're not acting as a publisher in that respect. But if at year, say, it's at, say you did a five-year deal with Sony, at year five, they'd only recouped... 200000 of that $250,000 advance they gave you, they would stay in those rights until they became fully recouped. In other words, Sony would stay in the rights until that $250,000 was recouped. And then if they're recouped, then it's after that five-year point, those rights would go back to you, the writer. You could also buy your way out of those rights at the five-year point, even if you're unrecouped, but you'd have to pay Sony a fee. They'd want you know the difference. So if it was 200000 uh, against two fifty, you'd have to pay them fifty thousand dollars, and most publishers will charge you a twenty five percent fee on top of that, which I don't understand the logic, but they do it. We don't do that. Um, but you could pay two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, or probably fifty plus the twenty five percent more, and get out of those rights and be free and clear up after that five year window is closed. So it's called a reversion period. It's exactly the same model the publishers use. So in our case, if a buyer put in say ten dollars, and it was a three year reversion, and at year three they'd only have $8 come back to their account, that $2 would stay open until it was paid off. Till the actual rights holder collects and pays through that additional $2, those fans stay in those rights. So that's just to get them even. So the worst case is you're in those rights for time, right? It could be another quarter, three quarters, a year, 10 years, five years, who knows how long to recoup those monies. There's no guarantee that royalties 
will come in just as there's no guarantee in the stock market. I, oh, I bought this stock for $100 and now it's at you know $50. Why? Well, there's no guarantee. The stock will, will vary based on demand. And royalty is the same way, except once royalties start to come in, they tend to be level over many years. So if you're dealing with a song which we called Seasoned, they a big hit that came out, I don't know, 10 years ago. Um, my guess would be that that royalty stream is much more stable than a hit that came out last year that no one knows, right? Last year, a song comes out, the label pumps it, boom, it does really great for the first six months, and then it falls down, and no one knows what, that, what the average earnings are going to be until maybe two or three years later. When it bounces back, and you realize, here's what it's going to earn with no promotion, no one working it, no one hyping it, and it starts to flatland. That's why catalogs like Bowie and older catalogs tend to have more value, because you can see what the earnings are over a long period of time versus a song that came out last month or a year ago even. Makes sense. Thanks for explaining that. So then on the fan side, then how do you, and the royalties, or maybe even for the artist too, what's the period with which they receive the royalties? Is there a periodic payout to this or is it until the end of the term or how does that work? It depends. Well, okay. So it depends again on the source of royalties. Uh, most PROs, like I mentioned, ASCAP, BMI, CSAC in the US pay quarterly. And when I say quarterly, <laughs> again, we're talking about the music industry. So it doesn't just mean every three months. It means quarterly plus typically 60 or 90. So per their contracts, uh, if you think, oh, the end of the first quarter is March 31st, right? That means January, February, March, three months. That's a quarter. End of that quarter is March 31st. I should get a statement on March 31st. Mm, You may think you're due the first quarter royalty check by March 31st, which is technically the end of the first quarter. In record industry land, and not just record industry, a lot of other industries work this way, they, they're due to pay you within 60 or 90 days after the end of the first quarter, right? So you may not get that check March 31st. You might get it June 30th. They have up to 90 days after the quarter to pay you. Some other platforms, like some labels and some publishers, pay you semi-annually. So you get paid twice a year, right? So every six months. Again, not on June 30th or January 1st, but 60 or 90 days. In fact, Sony, I think, used to be 120 days after that semi-annual period. So you would get the money not June 30th, but July, August, September, October, maybe as late as October for what should have been a June 30, what we call first half payment, right? So it depends on the source of the royalty. So uh, if your source pays semi-annually, you're going to see that twice a year. If it pays quarterly, you're going to see it four times a year. Just when in the year on schedule is going to be different from source to source. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Now, switching gears a little bit more to that specifically, uh, I believe you were funded in 2017 through the ICO boom. Seems like you're no longer using the blockchain. Is that fair, what I'm hearing or reading? No, and it's weird. Somebody wrote something that said we weren't using, or that quoted me that way, which is not accurate. Again, welcome to you know the media and welcome to journalism, because even when <laughs> someone says you said something in a reputable, and this was, I think, a marketplace article, was also was also on audio, so you will not hear me say that on audio, but the writer said something like, oh yeah, we're looking at getting into blockchain. We initially employed blockchain as a in a very light way, right? We saw it, this is again, 16, 17, when we were 18, we were building it. We realized things were going to become digital. Everything's going to be on a digital ledger at some point, right? Rights management is a perfect use for blockchain. What we also saw was that no one really had built a proper rights management platform on blockchain. There wasn't one single chain that was going to handle all rights everywhere globally. So we said, look, let's just drop transaction hashes for every transaction into the chain as it happens. So at least there's a record of it going down. So that's about the extent we did. We didn't do any kind of tokenization where, you know, you're going to get a token that goes with NFT that goes with it. And technically it is an NFT, but no one called them NFTs in 2017 or 18. It was a ledger entry, a transaction hash technically, um, which is a hexadecimal character string that goes in to say, this is the transaction on this chain. We started with Ethereum we built on ERC-20, as that was the first smart contract platform, as you recall. There wasn't any other game in town. And then we saw gas costs and, and transaction velocities go through the roof, and it became almost untenable. We saw CryptoKitties crash uh, Ethereum at one point and realized, man, this is not a high-volume you know, transaction platform that's going to work like that. So we shifted to Stellar, uh, Stellar Protocol, which I know everybody loves decentralization, but I'm telling you, and I don't have to tell you, you, you and your audience probably are aware that there's really very few truly decentralized platforms. There's a couple, but most have some governance in place and someone is running it because we're not quite there yet, especially with music rights. Someone has to govern it in some fashion. And otherwise, everybody would say, hey, I wrote that song, I wrote that song, I wrote all these songs, they're all my songs. Who's going to say no? 
right? And then you've got this big fight and then nothing ever happens. So we went to Stellar. Stellar had real offices in San Francisco. There's real people there. We could sit with them. And we, we shifted our protocol to Stellar. But yeah, we, we involved it on a, on a light basis. I think eventually, like, you know, with this NFT market starting to happen now, people are going to start tracking individual assets much more readily. My hope is that we start tracking things down to the STEM level. STEMs are pieces of songs. I think anybody that's made music after maybe 2007 is familiar with STEMs. Um, back in the day, we called them tracks. And any music that was done on analog recording doesn't have that ability. But uh, there are some, a couple of platforms that we're talking to that can actually take each song and, and split it down to the stem level very accurately. And then we can assign a, a token to each stem. And as that stem is used throughout the world, payments and compensation can come back to the creators, which I think is the holy grail. Once you can say, hey, I wrote this baseline, it gets this rate, and put that on a smart contract, and then, then you're not afraid. Then, then anybody can use it anywhere. In fact, you want people to use it everywhere. I call this the pay-for-use long tail where... Every time it's used somewhere, you're getting a little piece of something for it. And I made this argument to another journalist where you know, he's like, on YouTube, I said, that's the long tail, right? Most people cannot use music on YouTube because it's illegal. There's no license. So a sixth grader that's graduating from elementary school maybe wants to do a video about his graduation. He wants to use a, I don't know, a little Nas song, right? But he can't do it because it's illegal. YouTube will flag it, shut it down, etc., Although his classmates might enjoy it. He might enjoy it. Little Nas actually might enjoy the fact that his song is getting used to celebrate a graduation. But there's no physical, legal way to do it now. If you could identify that song by each stem, and you say, okay, there's 24 tracks in that song. Each one of those has a separate owner, creator of that baseline or that mix or that vocal or what have you. And even though it's a sixth grader's graduation video that got viewed 30 times, it's worth 0.02 cents. The, the creator would pay that or... YouTube, quite frankly, would pay because they're getting ad revenue against it. They send that 0.02 cents to the owners of those stems, right, in, in, in proportionate sense. And now everybody's happy. And guess what? That song now get played to another 30 people, probably played it to another 100 people. And the, the, so the creator's getting the benefit of full exploitation of their song. The kid that's making the video loves it because he could pick from any song out there without restriction. And... The system likes it because it's fair. And it's like, if you're, uh, if you're Jake Paul and you got 20 million YouTube subscribers and it gets played on your channel, yeah, you're going to have to pay $2,000 for that song or what have you. Jake Paul has no problem cutting a check for $2,000, nor does YouTube, right? But as long as you're being compensated at the rate that your art or work is being used, that's fair. And then you won't be afraid. You won't go, oh, I don't want anybody to use my song. You want everybody to use my song. I don't care if it's in a mashup from some kid in the Philippines chopping it up in 50 different ways you can't even think of, every time it gets played, I'm seeing that little tiny piece of royalty come into me, right? I think when we get there, people are going to be in a much better place. Yeah, I think that's powerful. And I, I like that example. It definitely crystallizes things for me. So thank you for that. A couple of things I need to touch back on. You'd mentioned earlier you were on ERC-20 and then you switched to Stellar, is there any bridge between ERC-20 and Stellar? And I'm asking this because I want to know if I were a fan who supported you when you were in ERC-20 and then you moved to Stellar, what does that mean for me? There is. We had a widget and we, I think we put up, it was like 180 days, right? I think there was some time period on it, but we're happy to you know accommodate anybody. I, I think we got the gist of anybody that was interested. There's a lot of people that came in for very, very few tokens or dollars early on and i don't think they even cared but yeah we provided a widget that was you, you would literally put in your wallet address it would convert that to a stellar and then your tokens would be there so yeah it was a pretty typical transfer protocol back then and and sticking on the fans too a little bit uh here i know a lot of people seem like thought it was a great idea with vest seems like a lot of people supported the company up front and i think i've been seeing comments of people not getting their royalties as expected do you just have any comments or words for those fans who supporting the artist? Hundred percent. Number one, I appreciate your support. I mean, we we totally appreciate you jumping in on a trailblazing platform because no one else had done this before. Uh, number two, yeah, I wish I had done a better job educating on how royalties themselves work. And you know, we if you go through our FAQs, you'll see deep in there. You know, it could be twelve to eighteen months, what have you. But people don't understand that, and I think. The crypto space specifically, <laughs> people are looking to 10, 20, 100x their, their stuff like tomorrow, right? I put in X, I bought this, you know, I bought some Shibu Inu, whatever, and I'm going to sell it on Thursday and I'm going to get 4x. Well, that's not how this works, right? And, and I, I probably, and I should, I'm, I'm trying to do a better job educating 
as to how royalties are collected. And, and it is a boring part of the music business. I mean, it, it's literally like watching paint dry. And it does take months and months and months, if not years plus months, to receive royalties. And they aren't always, you know, what people think. And people think, oh, I put in five bucks. How come I got a 14 cent check? Well, that was the first split of that royalties. And you own 0.00005 cents or 5% of that royalty. And that's what it equates to. They don't know they're in the royalties for three years or five years or 10 years. So you're going to get a bunch of those checks. And at one point, if the royalty doesn't meet your $5, say you, again, you recouped your $3.50 came in against the five, you stay in the royalties until you're fully recouped, right? So the worst part is you, it's time. You have to wait for those payments to, to get up to where you were. The best part is if something happens in that time frame, you benefit, right? If something like a Dreams, we saw that would happen on TikTok, where that guy's, you know, with the ocean spray and the skateboard, and he's just broken down his truck and he's riding into work. That song went through the roof. I heard Mick Fleetwood said it was 100 times more valuable after that TikTok video, which was completely unscripted, unplanned. It was a viral occurrence, which I think is going to happen more and more as social media platforms become more expanded and people start using them in different ways. But I think part of it was the education on how royalties actually function. And if you talk to any artist, you know, I think one of the reasons artists like our platform is because they're getting money up front. Right? They're taking three, five, or 10 years of earnings into a upfront payment, which helps them. Right, They don't have to wait five years to get that $1,000. They're getting it now. But on the other side, the fan's like, well, I put in 10 bucks. Shouldn't I get 20 bucks? Like, Not necessarily. Right, It depends on how that song earns. And the speed of which that returns is very slow. And again, I'll, I'll tell you why. Because if most of the monies are collected offshore. The U.S. is a country, but we're not the only biggest country. And we do have a lot of music usage here, but most of these songs earn more money overseas than they earn here. And when those monies come in, it takes, again, a, either a quarterly or a semi-annual collection period, and then 60 or 90 days after that period to cut a check to ASCAP or BMI, if it's a U.S.-based writer. And then they pay quarterly or semi-annually, and they have a 60 or 90-day period on the end of their check. So by the time the artist gets a check, it could be a year to 18 months after that royalty stream started. So there is a wait period. There is a period where nothing's happening. Um, some songs are going to perform much better than others. It's, it's much like the stock market in that fashion. I can't make any forward-speaking promises on royalties, and we never do. But it's it's literally, if someone uses that song a lot or gets streamed a lot or it's in a commercial or a movie, boom, that those numbers go up pretty heavily. right? If it's not used and it's just flat, it stays relatively flat. No one can predict which songs are going to be used more you know, in the future. So there's no way to know what that is. But the bottom line is, if you put in $5, you will get your $5 back over some period of time. Thank you for explaining that. But I do, I do think that as somebody who's running this company and who's pushing this new initial song offering or ISO, I, I will say the burden of explanation is on you to explain to people because everyone's like, well, I'm being scammed. I'm not getting my money back. And I think that there's got to be some effort on your company's end too to make that clearer and explain that for people so they don't think you're being scammed. One of the reasons I'm speaking to you, <laughs> All right. I do All as right. much of this as I can, and I want to get the word out. It's in our FAQs. I, I do medium articles. I do, I mean, I try to explain the royalty system is, but I got to tell you, the truth is most people don't read. Most people don't even want to know the details. You know this, yeah. right? When you I go know, buy I a know. car or buy a house, who reads those contracts? Anybody? You sign your name and all of a sudden you get a, a, a invoice for $290 a month. Like, what's that? Well, that's, that's your car loan. Well, I thought it was two fifty. Did you read that agreement? No. I agree, but I also say that a lot of these legal contracts are, they're there to intentionally deceive you, right? Like, it, no, it, it no, is annoying no. that I have to go read a bunch of fine no, no, print. No, 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 you know, no, no. I'm paying I, an extra I don't think forty bucks. They're made to deceive you. I th- you don't think no, so? No, I think they're made to inform you. And I'm, but you mentioned I was going to read it. So how am I going to get informed if I'm not going to read it? And you don't tell me well, like I know we set to fifty. It's actually two ninety a month. Not you if, know, like, if you're telling me that people just don't need to read anything, then then that's fine. When someone <laughs> when someone says, "Hey, you can," t- no one's forcing you to take this car, right? You're at the dealership. I want to get that new car. Great. Here's the contract. Ninety nine point nine percent of people sign the contract and walk out the door, right? There's a, a few people that are geeks like me that I will actually read the contract. I actually read my contracts. I'm very paranoid of being sort of taken advantage of. You sound like the kind of person that would do that. And I applaud you. And I think that's 
But you know you're rare, right? You know that's not everybody. You know that's not most people, right? I agree, but I'm a product person. So I'm also a believer that like, I want to do the work for the consumer so they don't have to do the heavy lifting. And not everyone thinks like that, but that's what I believe. 100%. You're, you're in the path of where we're going. So when we built this platform, there's large discussions about how, how much time and effort should be put out to UX, UI, right? You know what that is, user experience, user interface. If we had put an entire treatise on music royalties, it would have been about 55 pages long because we, we did it. And then no one would ever go on the platform. No one would ever read it. No one ever, this thing would be dead in the water. And it's just like Robinhood. Robinhood came off right after, I think it was released right after we were released, but we were watching them in beta. I was a beta member. And I said, this is how it should be, right? And, and here's my, my thinking behind it. I might be right, might be wrong. Give people the opportunity. If they want to learn more, there's always more information to learn and read and, and understand. But give them the opportunity first. If I want to buy Tesla, I click here, I own a piece of Tesla. Now, is it my fault if I don't read the prospectus? Honestly, I'll tell you, I haven't read Tesla's prospectus, right? And I would tell you this, 99.9% of investors in the stock market have not read the company's prospectuses that they're investing in. They just haven't. They're very complex and most people don't have the understanding or the time to get through them. Should they read them? 100% they should read them. Do they read them? No. Now, does that make them a good or bad investor? I don't know. But what it does is it's allowed, Robinhood's allowed them to play in this game that they couldn't play in before. And I do this myself. And I, if I'm putting $5 in somewhere, but I learn enough about it, right? When I first got into crypto, for example, I'd say, oh, here's $5, right? I did it more to learn about how it worked than thinking I'm going to make $5 million off my $5. No, but I want to see how this process works. What happens, right? Does it go up? Does it go down? Do I have to open another wallet? Do I have to go through MetaMask? I mean, all this stuff that you learn in the process was worth five bucks to me just for that, right? So what I'm saying is we made a decision to build something that was accessible. We put the FAQs in and there's plenty of reading you can do in music royalties. There's hundreds of thousands of books on how they're collected. You can go to ASCAP, BMI. There's any number of sources of information. But if that's what you're selling, if I'm selling a book, yeah, fine, I'll, I'll put in a book and sell a book. But this was a transactional marketplace. So just as Robinhood makes available resources, if you want to read Tesla's perspective, you could prospectus, you could do that. Or you could just click the button and buy Tesla. Now, is that bad or good? I happen to think Robinhood's probably benefited more people than it's hurt. The number of younger investors or inexperienced investors, I should say, that have now gained some kind of knowledge and understand the markets better than they did before, probably a good thing, right? Has it helped everybody? No. I'm sure people have lost stuff in uh, Robinhood. They didn't understand something. They had a, you know, oh man, I thought if I did this, it was going to go to this. Well, not necessarily, right? But that's also part of the experience. So yes, it, it royalties, music royalties on, their, on the surface seem very simple, and they should be. But if you dig a little deeper, they are more complex. We model it exactly like a music publisher's business structure is. And I thought that was simple enough. And yes, for some people, they've done well and that makes sense. For some people, they don't understand it at all or are upset because they don't see a royalty check, you know, a week later. So yes, it's on me to help educate people and I'm trying to do my best. Well, I appreciate you doing that. Thank you. And you've heard the guy, people. Go do your homework. <laughs> All right, then. Now, uh, just lastly, then, just talk more about Vest and where you guys are now. You've mentioned some of the technological changes you're making to your platform. What's next for you? Uh, how should people stay updated and keep informed? So we're looking, we've got a partnership with a, a big artist, finally, because to date, all of our stuff has been with big songs, but most of it through co-writers, producers, publishers, independent artists. Um, no one with a big reach. This person has a pretty big reach in social media, um, someone that I know personally and someone that is set up to go. We didn't want to release it prior to our tech structure being improved and, and, and confirmed, which is now looks like it's the case. Um, so we're setting that up now for first quarter. I, I get three or four emails and or calls a day regarding NFTs and the NFT space. Cons I'm consulting for other spaces that are NFT markets. They have zero clue because I think a lot of these are being built by amazing engineers and developers and tech guys that have zero knowledge about music royalties, period. Like, they, oh yeah, let's put a royalty out, two thirds of the song. Okay, is the song registered? What? Where do I register? Well, there's like eight different places you have to register depending on what royalty pool you're looking for. They haven't asked question one. 
right? There's no, they're just putting it out there and people are buying into it and reselling it without even knowing what it is or how to register or collect on these royalties. And it's something that we do, you know, we've got that figured out, but it's about now scaling up. It's about marketing. We're still very much under the radar. Our early users, I think, are, you know, they're trailblazers. They're in a space that they know they were ahead of themselves, right? NFTs came after us. And if you start to look at where this is going to go, I think you're going to see NFT slash ISOs that are, that are strictly music royalty based. They're going to be handled in a much more clear manner, even clearer than, than we've done early with Vest. And we're going to improve upon that. I want to make that much more transparent. And I want to tie it in to let people see how each other's platforms are doing. Other, others, like even a leaderboard, almost gamifying it to a certain extent. So I think that's powerful. And once you have networks of people working together or talking about something, it becomes much more powerful. I mean, I see a lot of stuff in Discord. I see stuff on Telegram. I mean, first of all, to get a, to get a positive comment is, you know, most people trend negative, right? If something happens that's fine, no one tells you, hey, man, that, you did a great job or you met expectations or whatever. You get nothing. If you go to the restaurant, they serve you, great. You get a, a standard tip, see you later. If the soup was cold or there was like, a crack in the dish or the fork was bent. Oh my God, this is the worst place I've ever been. This fork was bent. They didn't notice it. I could have cut my lip. It's like, it's like a whole, you know, human nature. I'm just saying that's how it is. And if you look at any stream of comments, the number of negative to positive is going to be probably five to one. It's more prevalent online too, right? There's a lot of keyboard ninjas who just say whatever they want to say because no one can see them. So yeah. Uh, that's exactly right. Come on, ladies show and, and <laughs> do a podcast like me. Come on, let's do it. Exactly. I appreciate that. No, thank you. <laughs> I'm excited to hear about the new artists. Um, in general, though, just any other artists you hope to work with, you know, what's on your wish list before I let you go? Oh, man. Any any artist that's got a fan base that's engaged, number one, it could be an indie. We have stories of indie artists. Some of the stuff that doesn't get out there is, you know, we had guys, a guy named Julian Extra had 3,000 Facebook fans, and he grew that audience his first check from us, I think $8,700, he engaged every one of those 3,000 fans and took him from driving a lift all day and making music at two in the morning to making music all day and maybe driving a lift at night, right? It changed the trajectory of his career. I know that can happen multiple times for multiple artists that are on their way up. Instead of, like we said earlier at the beginning of the conversation, the label doesn't have to be the gatekeeper, right? There are ways to get around this and, and, and engaging and empowering your fan base is one of them, right? Let them come on that journey with you. Say, look, you it's risky. It's early. I don't have a big fan base. These aren't hit songs, but let's make them hits, right? I'm going to write some stuff. You've already heard it. You like it. Tell your friends. Tell your network. When they start streaming it, we all benefit, right? That's where this goes. When you get that mass fan base behind something and they can participate in a real meaningful way with an ownership state, that's powerful. I think we're going there. Yeah. Can't wait to see that. And then last question for you. How's the music industry reacting to all this? Not the artists or the fans, but, you know, record labels. Are they open to it? What are they thinking? <laughs> are you worried? <laughs> Somebody asked me this the other day. I said, there's, there's two answers. One, they're either shaking their boots or they're licking their chops. And I happen to think that's a little of both, but I think they're probably licking their chops more than shaking in their boots because they see this as an opportunity. They've been built on retail networks in the middle, right? So, Back in the day of physical product with CDs and cassettes and vinyl, Warner, for example, had to sell to Best Buy or had to sell to Tower, had to sell to HMV or Virgin Music. I mean, they had a network and that network charged retail, right? They could take that CD for $9 from Warner and sell it for $18 to the public. What they also got was the consumer data, right? They knew who the customer was because they had the point of purchase. So Warner stuck the stuff in a box, sent it off in a truck. They didn't know where it went. Right? They had no connection with the end user at all. And that's going to change. You're seeing these bigger companies saying, why aren't we having a direct relationship with the end user, with the customer, with the fan? That's where the real money is. That's where the retail payment is. And with digital goods and digital delivery, no longer do you have to rely on a trucking company or a warehousing company or a shipping company or breakage or you know, all that stuff that was issues with shipping something across the country, across the world. Those issues are gone, right? So I think you're going to see people, or the labels have a renaissance. They're jumping into the NFT business, as we see today with Warner Brothers. Um, they're going to try to figure out a way to benefit from this directly. But what I also see is the quaking in their boots side is a lot of big artists are going to see the same idea and go, why do I need Warner Brothers when I can go do this on my own, right? And instead of that 10-cent book, I'm taking the $10 book. So 
my music goes, maybe it's streamed at 99 cents on iTunes or Apple Music for a download, but maybe I can jump in and, and get a bigger piece of that. Maybe I do something like Tidal, and maybe Tidal comes in with a different model, or another company comes in with a different model where the streaming rates vary based on how popular a song is, right? All songs can't be worth the same. That doesn't make sense. It's like every car is the same, cost the same. No, you got a Honda and you got a Mercedes, right? There's two different levels of quality and uses for those vehicles. And that's why one is priced higher than the other. So why are all the songs the same price? I don't know. But things will change. You'll see new innovation come faster than you can shake a stick at. I think artists will see that 12 cents start to ease up to maybe 50 cents and further, hopefully. I think you'll see participation from consumers and fans. And I think fans will also be able to participate for the first time, connecting directly with the creators, supporting the creators, participating with the creators, helping them out. I think once you see social media influencers start to connect with these artists in a new, meaningful way, all bets are off. I mean, things are going to go through through the roof quickly. Yeah, well said. No, this has been really great, Steve. I really enjoyed this conversation. Same, same. I appreciate the questions. It sounds like you understand the space very well, and I'm super happy that you asked and asked me to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Lyde. Until next time. <laughs>